Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Ve'etachanan, which the Torah section covers uh, Deuteronomy chapter 3, starting in verse 23, and goes through chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, uh, verse 11. And then, of course, we had the reading today of, from Psalm, uh, Psalm, Isaiah chapter 40, and also from uh, Luke chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 5. So, one of the reasons why we have the section in here of Isaiah chapter 40 is because this is one of the special Shabbats kind of leading up to the time on the seventh month when you have all the, the main events, you might say, or the, the latter part of the year of uh, Yom Teruah or the Feast of Trumpets, and then you have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then you've got Sukkot, the Festival of Tabernacles. So this particular Shabbat leading up to those particular times in the seventh month is called a Shabbat Nachomu, or the Shabbat or Sabbath of comforting. And the traditional reading for that is Isaiah chapter 40. And you'll see from the section that um, Sam was reading from in Luke chapter 3 that this Isaiah chapter 40 passage factors in as a very important messianic implications for it so this particular um painting that we have here it's a more of a (laughs) later time uh rendition of what the artist thought the 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 walls looked like at that particular time but needless to say it's showing a whole lot of tumult and if you've ever read some of the passages from josephus and some of the other historians of what the destruction of the of Jerusalem and the temple was at the time of Romans. Uh, the time of the Romans, it was horrifically bad, horrifically bad. And the the carnage that you see recorded in there between the the people, what they do, what happens to people who are under siege, who have uh, no resources for food or water, so. That is uh, something that is incredibly horrific, what you have to fall back on. So, in that context of this, you know, you think of, wow, things are getting bad in our point in history. Well, one of the good things to always remember about uh, situations like this, like looking back to the destructions, plural, of Jerusalem and of the temple, the abominations of desolation that have happened throughout time is that, yes, it has been worse before. And yes, when we're looking at the day of the Lord, it will get even worse. So one of the things that our brothers and sisters in the faith have looked at over the centuries, over the eons, is that 
no matter what sort of trials that we are going through, just like we've gone through in, in, uh, and we've looked at in James chapter 1, the Apostle Yelkov tells us that, yes, when you encounter these trials and you face these trials of many kinds, what does the Apostle say? Give up. Just scream and yell, grouse, complain. It, was that the Apostle's advice? No. And what are these trials for? Yes, Alex. It says to hang in there, yes. Not because it's going to save your life, because they were killing each other. Mm. Josephus ended up befriending, yes. and he, they killed him. The Romans were killing each other. The Jews were killing each other. There was no safe harbor for anybody. So, yeah. And John the Baptist knew that, too. But, uh, so there's no safe harbor for anybody. So you might as well just stay your course. <laughs> That's right. But one of the things that the apostle is getting at is that this is for what? Building perseverance, for building endurance. And then for the purpose of it in the very end is that you will be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So one of the key goals is no matter what it is that you're facing, no matter how bad you think it is, the point of it is to realize what? But everything depends on me. Yes. That's one of the things that our brothers and sisters and the family of God have realized that, hey, there is something worse than death. There is something worse than death. And that's, a lot of people have perhaps forgotten that over the past couple of years and thinking, well, death is the worst thing, so throw everything else out the window. Throw your trust in God out the window. Throw your freedom of expression out the window. Throw everything out the window just so you don't die. Well, that is something that our brothers and sisters and the family of God, to this very day, they would rather follow the instructions of our savior it's like hey if the master suffered so the servants will suffer and just like the apostles there in the dungeon you know, were singing praises because they were counted worthy for what for complaining no for suffering for the sake of the name yes pamela you have your hand up go ahead Okay, now you can hear me. Yes, go ahead. Um, I wanted to make I wanted to make some comments on Deuteronomy, like six. Okay, um, yeah, we're yeah we're de- sure we're we're definitely going to get there. Uh, but uh, go ahead. What is your uh, comment? Well, okay, the one where it's talking about frontlets between your eyes, and I'm wondering, are those glasses, as we could compare them with this day and age? Frontals, well, the one thing that it's, it's talking about when you go back to the, uh, the language there about the uh, items that are going in between your eyes and on your hands is that this is what has been given the, the term of uh, called phylacteries, but they're mainly the emblems and reminders of uh, prayer. Now, through traditions, have come down what those particular things are of those. But what was that you were saying? Would, we, would they be considered as a sign 
that we are to remind ourselves and, and even like frontless between your eyes, we don't wear those kind of things in our costumes, but it could be, be considered like glasses. You know, what are you going to, are you going to read God's word? And, and so you might put on your glasses. Well, sure, I, you, you could uh, certainly have that kind of a reminder. Um, one of the, the ways that you have with traditions is that they help focus people's attention around uh, particular emblems. So thus, when it's talking about on the doorposts of your homes, you have traditions that come down as to what those look like. But again, those things are traditions. They are common things that the people of God can look toward as being things, disciplines to help us out. Uh, yes, Alex. I'm glad uh, Pamela brought it up because, you know, I should have tzitzits, and I do have a mezuzah on the door post, but the little box on the forehead, I'm going to have to beg mercy from Yahweh. I, I can't well, do it. It, 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 is, it. It's one of those things that uh, when, you, when you talk about tradition tells you what they or has instructed what they look like or given some indirection, but then various sects have come up with their own ver variations of it. You look through history. There are some that are just like extremely tiny, like the size of a po postage stamp. There are ones that are very large. So that determines, that's determined by the particular tradition that goes through. But also they're not, um, depending on the tradition, they're not worn all the time. They're only worn at certain times and during certain times of prayer. So they're not like you're going around all the time with a particular thing on your forehead. And just like with the doorposts of your home, you know, you don't carry around a door frame with you everywhere you go, which might be kind of an interesting exercise in and of itself, but normally you don't. So thus, when you're crossing through your door frames, what then are they a reminder of? The reminder of, you know, well, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're a reminder of where the doors of your home are. And there's various reflections of what things are entering into your home. And then that should also make you think back to you were painting blood onto the mezuzot of your home. So you think back also to the one who delivered you from the destroyer, who also sent the destroyer into Egypt. So those are two reminders back to just like this passage we saw here today, reminder of that particular time period. Uh, yes, Jared. Uh, just a couple of comments on this whole thing. Uh, when I was um, learning Hebrew, my Hebrew teacher, she was an Israeli woman who immigrated to the United States. I met her at a synagogue over here in San Rosa at Bethany, and her name's Ahuva, and she taught me. Um, when we were going through the Shema, she said, Well, do you know why um, we where the, the tefillin, is the, the phylacteries as they're called, he says, when we got out of Egypt, we went from being slaves to practically being royalty under God. He said, and she also explained it, that um, traditionally that when the Shema is said in a synagogue, it's not just Deuteronomy 6.4 and the verses that follow afterwards. It's also a section from number, two sections from numbers. One of them is, uh, if you keep my commandments and I'll give you grass and I'll promise you all these things. If you don't keep my commandments, then the land will spit you out, I think is the, one of the sections. No, it's, it's in numbers. And I might be mixing up my verses. But, uh, and then another one, the final section is the, is the section about tzitzit found in numbers. 
13, I think. And she says, well, the reason why God told us to wear these things is because now we're, we're royalty. We're princes, and prince, we're princes and princesses under him. And back then, the only people who wore tassels on their clothing or fringes on their clothing, and it's not necessarily like the four corners that we came, come, come to know it as today, but it's, they would just wear tufts of uh, string around their corners. And the techelet, or this blue that they used back then, which came from a very specific sea snail, which used to only, I think, used to only be used by royalty or uh, uh, high priests, so or the very elite in society. So, um, and when she talks, and when she also taught me about putting between your eyes and your hands, it says that was that's like a jewel that you would wear on your forehead, which only princes and royalty and high priests would wear as a symbol of, uh, of power or social status. So by wearing these zitzit with the very special blue in them and by having something to have on our forehead and as, as a sign on our hand, it was we are essentially royalty for these um, um, under, under God, we are, we are essentially like royalty, whereas princes and princesses. Um, and another thing with the mezuzah, something that I just thought about um, was uh, there's the physical, you know, put it on, the, on your doors and, you know, it depends on what that looks like. Do you write them out, chisel them out, or put a mezuzah on your door? Um, another thing, I guess another way you can interpret that is, um, I forget where it is in the Torah portion, but it says you shall establish judges for your gates on your cities. And a very popular way to also interpret that is our bodies are like cities and we have entrances to those cities. So guard the gates of your city can mean physically put up guards and soldiers and checkpoints. And it's also a place where the elders would have their courts and make decisions for the cities. Um, so I guess another way to look at, you should write these words on the doorposts of your homes and on your gates would be, it should be coming out of our, um, you know, it should be on us all the time. You know, we should be seeing things and seeing how it, I guess, relates to, to God or we should be hearing certain we should only we should only be listening to certain things, seeing certain things, even smelling or tasting or saying certain things. So, that's another way of saying separate yourselves from the rest of the world by with these commandments that I'm giving you. Yeah, correct. So it's just the what is going to be mastering the gates of your house? Is it the word of God or is it something else? So, uh, Howard, you have your hand up. Uh, yeah, I wanted to to speak to the. Um having the box on your forehead, as some of the Orthodox uh, Jews do. Uh, some people I know, they write the Shema on the brim of their hat, and they keep that on their head, and it's a reminder. You look up and you see the Shema right there, so that's a way to keep it in front of you, between your eyes, uh, for people that don't want to wear a box on their head. All right. But you know, one of those one of those things to to always always remember is that um, it's a, a a completely another discussion is that uh, the the urge for I uh, to be an iconoclast or to break down uh, icons can end up leading to setting up other icons. So 
um, that's that's always a thing that you want to say, okay, well, I don't want to follow this tradition, so I set up my own tradition. So similar to what the Karaites will say, we like to break down all the traditions of the rabbis, yet what do they have? They have their own tradition. So um, that's that's one of those things to always always keep in mind. It's a great spiritual discipline, but what is the heart that you're going about in the particular tradition that you're replacing? Are you replacing just another tradition with a tr- another tradition? So, uh, yes, uh, Rose, go ahead. I was just thinking of Matthew 7, uh, you know, when you're talking about doorposts. Yes. Where, you know, God said to enter in uh, the narrow way, because wide is the way that leads to destruction. Where, you know, when you go in through the sheep gate, there's only room for one at a time. And so we should live that narrow lifestyle. Yeah, the interesting idea of the uh, the shoots. If you've ever had a chance to be around uh, livestock pens, you know, it's very helpful to do what? Send them in a lot at a time or one at a time? No, it's one at a time is more helpful for uh, management. All right, well, uh, as we were going there, we'll continue back into our discussion of Isaiah chapter 40, where we started out. Oh, can I please one more one more thing uh, what, on, on what, Deuteronomy? What, what else is that? Uh, we're we're going to be getting to Deuteronomy here soon, but uh, what else? Other comment do you have, Pamela? Oh, I'll wait, I'll wait. So it was just that when we're told in Deuteronomy 7, verse 11, to remember the commands and the laws and right ruling, and I'm thinking, you know, like we do the um, the main holidays and other Christians don't. So to forget God is to not do his commands. So if they don't do these things, they're really not thinking about God. Yeah, you also have to take into consideration about um, where you also have the word that says, uh, how can they they go if or if they've not been sent, or how can they know if they haven't been taught? So that is one thing that you always have to uh, take into consideration is that there is a challenge of not only just hearing the words, but also having them explained. As there is a way that you can explain them, and then there is a way that you can explain them. So that's something to always take into consideration. Okay. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. So one of the things that we have in this particular passage in I, back in Isaiah chapter 40, is when we're, we're thinking about speed in a really tumultuous time period of things are coming apart at the seams, whether in your personal life or you just look in the society around you and it just looks like everything is falling apart. Just remember, the family of God has been here before. Family of God has been here before. And God has, has carried people through challenges, not only in the ancient past, but also in the recent past, and also at our very day right now. In a number of countries right now, people are going through all kinds of terrible things. You can see in the news, there are people in North Korea going through incredible challenges, and China going through incredible challenges, and Iran going through incredible challenges, and Afghanistan our brothers and sisters running for their lives, being you know pulled out in the middle of the night. 
in Africa going through lots of challenges and the Middle East going through lots and lots of challenges. So this is happening all over the earth all the time where people are needing comfort, needing comfort where it looks like everything is just falling down around them. So one of the things that you see in this particular passage in Isaiah 40 verse 2 where it says speak kindly or speak to the heart to the lev, to the heart of Israel. So one of the things that you're seeing in this particular passage of comfort is that this is speaking to the heart. The heart is sad. The heart is just in anguish of the destruction because you see the particular prophet here, Yeshayahu, is speaking to people that have seen it all come down around them. You know, you have the earlier prophet, Jeremiah, he was talking, hey, this is coming. And even Moshe, in the passage that we were just reading, is a hinting at what you're going to see later on in the book of Deuteronomy. That, you know, if you don't listen, <laughs> things are going to come apart and your, your nice little land of rest is going to be pulled out from underneath you. And you are going to have a serious time out as a people but then you'd be regathered and put back together again so for this particular generation there that that the prophet was speaking to can also apply to us today now this particular passage it's talking about it goes on and says that her iniquity has been removed now this is a foretaste, which is why the one of the nicknames for the Mashiach, the Messiah, Christ, is Manachem, or Comforter. And that is a very important name for the Messiah, because Messiah is one who's going to bring comfort. Not only just comfort for the people physically, but also for what is truly inside of them. Because as we've seen in Scripture, and as you've heard from the testimony of our brothers and sisters in the faith through long periods of time, is that the comfort that comes to you inside can help you get through incredible terrors that happen on the outside. Because, you know, you've heard of people that have been able to just go through unspeakable things that have been done to them. Because why? No matter what the people were doing to them on the outside, they could not touch what was going on to the person on the inside. So last time, in our last Torah portion, we were talking about being in preparation, in preparation for the day of the Lord. And a part of that preparation, just as the Apostle Yaakov there says, the letter of the James, that it's important because this, every little trial that comes upon us is a time for us to build, 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 so that when these things come along, we've already practiced, like the musician who practices before they need to perform, like the tradesperson who hones the craft so that when they need to do the job, they can do it, do it well, do it fast, do it competently, and then move on. 
from one thing to the next. Because why? They've already done it many, many, many times. But how was it the first time you tried it? <laughs> it may have worked, or it may have been a disaster, or it may have just taken two or three times as long as it should have taken. So, with any particular task, just like in life, you have to be ready for it as it's coming along. So, when you see the particular passages like in John chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, where Yeshua was telling them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, where did we just hear that before? It was in the passage we just read today in Deuteronomy. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, or the parakletos there in Hebrew, which is the same word that's used in the Septuagint for benachamim, or the comforters. That he, may be, uh, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. And when we've gone through this passage before, we can see that this, the, the holy handoff between one comforter and the other comforter, the comforter Mashiach, and the comforter spirit of God, that handoff from one to the next is hugely important because you see that handoff also in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 7 is what? Who can deliver me from this body of death? Well, who delivers? Mashiach delivers. Then what's Romans chapter 8 about? Now that you have no condemnation because of Mashiach, then what? Just kind of flounder about through life, kind of bouncing around, as Apostle Yaakov says, like a ship on the ocean, just kind of bouncing around from one calamity to the next, not having any clue about what to do. Just roll the dice and figure out what you do each day. Now, it is... The spirit of truth, then when you read on Romans chapter 8, does what? Brings those things to mind. Helps focus. Yes, uh, Larry, I'm sorry, you have your hand up over there. People say, you know, since Messiah came, we don't need the law anymore. Because he said, if you, would know, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. And he gave that one commandment, love, love one another. But that would be a good response to them, say, it's the same thing that was said back in the, in the Torah by Jehovah um, through Moses. The same, same like you, like you pointed out the same words. So do you think he meant it any differently? Yeah. And that's what we'll, what we'll see in this particular passage. When you look back and you see that um, this prophecy of the Messianic era in Psalm, or Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14, it says, Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? So, you see this picture that this is what the great comfort is going to be. 
is that the comfort from heaven to the people of God that are undergoing all kinds of stress is what? Being left helpless without any sort of direction? Or as what Jared was talking about earlier, your gates, the borders of your self, are instructed and guarded by what? God's law, God's words. So thus, when we get into our next section, next week, we'll, our next reading will be going into Deuteronomy chapter 8, which is where we get the passage that Yeshua quoted from to the adversary, that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So thus, you see that the words of God are those things that sustain us and they also guard us and protect us against what? Temptation, evil, ourselves. As we were talking about earlier, the person who is complete lacking nothing inside themselves, what can the stuff on the outside do? They can tear down the outside, but the inside is intact. You open your doors and just let whatever in, what happens to the inside? Yeah, you might remember then a parable that Yeshua told about that very thing, about used it in the sense of that someone had a demon inside the house. They threw it out, swept it clean. But you get the picture that the, it was cleaned and empty. So thus, the demon went and got seven worse than itself and went in and they occupied the home. And what was the condition at the latter point? Worse than it was when it started. So thus, just like the instruction there, it's a very important spiritual principle of guarding the doorposts of your homes with the words of God to make sure that the stuff that's getting in, you know, to use it in modern parlance, the, the <laughs> it's a very crude analogy, but the words of God on your doorposts are like the virus checkers on your computer. I mean, these days, you're almost crazy if you don't have something like that running. Why? You're crazy if you don't have some sort of firewall on your internet connection. Why? Because there's all kinds of stuff that's just trying to get in to your computer. To just take it over, destroy it, whatever. Turn it into a slave where it then starts trying to infect other places, other computers out there. So, just like... And this is another Kalvachomer argument. So just as in today's day, you're almost crazy if you don't have some sort of firewall and virus checkers on your computer, well, then how much more should the gates of your house, your self, also have something checking the gates to see, hey, I think even something like that was said by the Apostle Paul. When he says to do what with your thoughts? 
take every thought captive and do what with it? Kind of look at it, admire it, go, hmm, or do what? Yes, make sure that it is obedient to the law of Mashiach. And just as we were saying here in our reading here, Matthew chapter 5, the beginning part of it, it ends with, what is the law of Mashiach? Love your neighbor as yourself? Well, when he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, that means that the law of Mashiach is what? Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Mashiach, just like an ambassador, is not singing a different tune from the head of state who sent the ambassador. The ambassador is singing the same tune. is speaking the same words. So this Mashiach is speaking every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That was the Mashiach's defense against the adversary. So thus, when you see also in this passage, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, when it says, A voice calling, Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So this is another prophecy here. That this coming... Menachem, the comforter of heaven, would be fulfilled with a particular herald of the Mashiach. They're recorded in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Yes, I, I'm sorry, go ahead, uh, Anne. Um, I was thinking of the, the full armor of God. And all oh, the yes. Right, mm. Because those are, those are our openings, you know, our ears would be our... Our helmet of salvation, which is on our head, also our mind, and um, and then our 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 heart would be the breastplate of righteousness, and the shield of faith would be to extinguish the arrows. The arrows, right, and yes. then the, the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. But I was thinking of the openings of the eyes, you know, and the ears. Yes. Mouth and all of our, all of our <laughs> open doors in a way, right? We have our own doors and our own body, right. you know, that allows things in. And he says not to even think or 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 allow yourself to see something that is going to bring you down the wrong road. We'll say, Amen. Amen. Yeah, because you, you bring a very up a very interesting point that. You know, if you're, <laughs> you think of ancient Israel, that if our forefathers and we, as we've talked about Passover time, go through the same experience ourselves, when we are removed from our house of bondage, do we leave or are we still there? If your head, you know, we have this phrase, is your head in the game? Meaning, <laughs> is, you know, are you really thinking now presently about what's going on and are preparing to act and respond. Well, if your head is still in Egypt, are you, is your head really in the game? No. We see that the instruction is for your head to be in the land, to be rest. Your head has to leave the house of bondage, go to the mountain of the testimony, Go to the land of rest. That's where your head needs to be headed. So, like, 
So this passage we have here in Matthew chapter 3, verses, um, starting with verse 1 through 6. Now in those days, Yohanan the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Yeshiahu the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now Yohanan himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Yerushalayim was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Yarden. And they were being baptized by him in the Yarden River as they were confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Parashim and the Tzadakim coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with the repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Avraham as our father. For I say to you, that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Avraham. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not able to remove his sandals. And he will mikvah you with the Holy Spirit, and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So thus, when the Lord harvests us as the Lord's crop, his grain field is going to be, his silo is going to be full of what? Chaff? No. So the chaff, as we were using with our illustration earlier, the chaff is outside of your gates. You've got to leave the chaff of yesterday outside to let it be removed, to let it be threshed, so that you're not bringing what gets burnt up with you and piling up within ourselves the things that just don't go on any longer. So continuing on in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 13 and 14. So who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as counselors informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? So yet another prophecy. Another prophecy of the Mashiach. And we see that the role of the Spirit of God, so just like you saw there in the Gospel of John, that there is this tag team handoff from one Menachem to another Menachem, one comforter to another comforter. And you also see that there is a similar sort of dressing down that comes in here with the Lord coming through the prophet to Israel, a similar sort of dressing down that you see in the last chapters of Job, Job chapter 38 going through um, pretty much chapter 41 and a little bit into 42, where you get those passages like, well, basically 
who do you think you are to come up with these kinds of accusations and thinking that you really understand what's going on? There's a, something that, that uh, Tammy was uh, offering uh, to me earlier this week and reminded me of it is that you know, we can go through and try to, to suss out and to reason out all of the great mysteries and complexities of the creator of heaven and earth. But at one point, we just have to realize, you know, we're just like dog paddling. Yes, we, we you know, as, as, you know, the, <laughs> as the um, Apostle Yaakov puts it in his letter, James, you know, we are seeing what? We are seeing things in a very impure mirror. Uh, and in ancient, in, in ancient times, you know, we, we don't have these wonderful um, mirrors that we have that are done in, with industrial processes and you, they lay down the nice uh, silver or uh, nowadays it's a metallic uh, chrome plating on it so that you get this nice, perfect reflection of what it was. In ancient times, it was usually a, some sort of metal that was polished highly so much. Or, you know, you'd use water would be the other thing to get a reflection of yourself. But you are seeing things dimly. But, and interestingly enough, that even if you were to take the modern analogy of the perfect mirror that we have now, most of us have an incredibly perfect mirror that we can look at. Uh, strangely how it's called a vanity. The... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the interesting aspect of that is, is that when you were even looking at a, quote, perfect reflection of yourself as of today, are you actually seeing everything that what it is? What are you actually seeing? Whether you got schmutz on your face or something, that's what you're seeing. Or if your hair is combed or do you even... Uh, washed your hair or anything like that. That's what you're seeing. But what are you not seeing? <laughs> well, maybe if you have enough mirrors, you can see all around you. But you're not seeing what's happening on the inside. But what is it that you do actually see if what is put up against you to look at? The Apostle Yaakov says, look into the perfect law of liberty. If that is what you're looking at, that's where you get into Romans chapter 7, where it says, when I compared myself to that, to the words of God and how God describes how we are to behave, how our motives are to be, what we are actually acting from, we, when we compare ourselves to that, then what do we look like to ourselves? We're not fooling ourselves anymore with this, all we see is the outside. So as long as our hair is combed and we don't have all kinds of stuff all over our face, then everything's fine. No. 
It's what is going on the inside that is the absolute difference. So thus, when you go on here and further into Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, where it says, And see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. So thus, we're seeing here that this, when you're talking about the depth and breadth of who we are talking about, when you just say the creator of heaven and earth, Earth by itself, the creator of Earth, is an amazing thing to even conceive of. Not only just our bodies and how fearfully and wonderfully they are made. You know, like today we were talking earlier about computers. What is the, the big problem about computers? Viruses. But what happens when you get lots of things Lots of applications loaded at the same time. Memory. Conflicts. Yes. And you know, it talks about the circuits. When they, they start making them too small, they can run into all kinds of problems of uh, cross-communication. But one of the things you have, often have is you have systems that compete with each other and can create conflicts and create all kinds of problems where one application is just, is making your other applications crash. But one of the things that you see in our human body are all of the things that work together at once. I mean, I'm just sitting here flapping my gums right now. And if you were to have a computer engineer, describe what it is I'm actually doing right now with talking, my vocal cords moving, my lungs moving, my lips moving, tongue moving. I mean, think about the motor control involved in just moving your tongue around. If you ever taught a foreign language to somebody, trying to get them to have the patterns of movements of the tongue in one language to then move it into the patterns of tongue movement on the other language, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, like when, when we were teaching English over in Korea, there are just certain movements of a tongue that are completely different in English than they are in Korean. And to get them moving in a completely different direction is incredibly difficult to then learn these new patterns. But what are you doing? Your brain is telling all of the things, all the muscles in your tongue to now do something different. So, fearfully and wonderfully made we are. And that's just one creation, the pinnacle of creation on this planet. Not to mention we start talking about all the other things that are on this planet that help us live every day. In addition to that, oh, that incidental you know, burning ball of gas that's uh, 93 million miles away just incidental thing that makes all of what's going on here possible. And that incidental little thing about the bunch of gas that's above our head, which we look out and it looks blue and keeps us from roasting or freezing and turning to a crisp from all kinds of um, wavelengths of light that are 
not helpful to us. So besides those little incidental details, it's just a pretty uh, easy sort of thing. Yes, Jared. And this giant ball of who knows what kind of gas, a little red dot in the middle that's even further than the big flaming ball of gas that's 93 million miles away from us that catches all these giant asteroids that would wipe out half humanity yes. if one of them hit Earth. Poof, yeah. Luckily, it had millions upon millions of years to come up right. with that. Yeah, the, the, the wonderful um, solar system vacuum cleaner that I was referring to as the uh, planet Jupiter. This is yeah, amazing. But... Those are just small things compared to the vastness. And they just hooked up a new telescope so we can look even further out there. So the pictures that we saw before with the Hubble telescope, and just like you look out there in a tiny little bit of the sky, and it's like all those little dots out there are galaxies. And now we got a bigger telescope so we can look at that same little, little tiny bit of sky and see that all of those black areas that we saw that were seemingly nothing in the first picture are full of galaxies beyond that. So then when we look and you see that the one who did all of that and did all of this around us so we can see outside and with ourselves that I can, I can talk and I can point and all of these things, that that one who did all this is now saying, hey, he cares about us and is now looking to take us from our distress, however distressful it will be. In this case, he was talking to people that are imprisoned in another country, taken away, that that comfort would be brought even to us on the inside. Yes, uh, Larry. The other side of the coin, which Gigo, with our, our biological machine, Garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> yes, garbage in, garbage out, which you know is one of those those things that um, uh, militates strongly against the idea that this is a random assembling of things, because just just like you know if you were to just go inside your computer and just start randomly uh, messing with things, that it's not going to go well. Just like with us, if you just randomly just start going and removing stuff and doing stuff to your own body, it doesn't go well. So thus, the things, the marvels that we see around us do not come by the random assemblage of things, trial and error. Yes, the, the like typing all together, 10,000 monkeys uh, typing, yes. Britannica? Yeah, eventually uh, no. typing it. <laughs> Because the key question comes in with that illustration is, even if the monkeys did, who would know? Because that, that is the thing that is the hallmark of the creator, is that communication, me flapping my gums up here, only does anything if what? If it's received. There must be sender and receiver. The sender and receiver have to have what is known as a common codex. Because, you know, if Sam was to speak with me with the languages that he knows, I would not understand it. Because why? I don't have that codex. But if Sam were to speak with people who have that codex, perfectly understandable. So that is one of the hallmarks that we are wonderfully and fearfully made 
is that when he says, you will live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, that that word proceeded out of the mouth of God was received by us, by all the prophets, by Moshe and all of the other prophets, spoken by Mashiach to his apostles, and then go to us, written down here, and we get it on the other end. That is one of the greatest hallmarks that there is a creator of heaven and earth that there possibly could be. Because with the illustration of the, the monkeys pounding away, if all there is is a sender and no possibility for a receiver, you've done absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like, if you were to have, you know, speaking Larry's language again, if you were to have a programmer, but no compiler, and no computer that can understand it on the other end, what have you accomplished? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> yes. So, when we have this, um, this particular passage we have in Isaiah 40.26 is also a foretaste of this, what Mashiach was going to do about the lost sheep of Israel. Oh, uh, Rose, I'm, I'm sorry, before just, we move on. I was just yes. going to say that this is not just paper and ink. This is the living word of God. Yes. And, and it, it comes alive because that, uh, <laughs> that's, and, and see, that's one of the, the other illustrations of why, we, why communication is spiritual. Because why? Those words right there on that page are also in here, in this tablet, computer tablet. Same message. You can read it there. I can read it here. I get the same message. But what does that weigh? I can weigh that page of that book, and I can weigh this, and... Is it any different? It doesn't weigh anything here on this tablet. It, the page weighs something over there, and the ink infinitesimally weighs a little bit more than that. But heavy. The, the word of God is very, very heavy. When you think about it, it, yes. it would be better that you fall upon the rock than the rock fall upon you. That's right. So when you think of it in that terms, the word of God is very heavy. Yes. I don't know how it's brought to you. That's right. That would be bad. It's, it's definitely heavy, but that is one of the, the great testimonies that we have is that this word can go out into all the earth by various means. Someone can memorize the entire word and then just speak it, and that would be the same word as it was if you wrote, if you read it. Or, yes? I just want to repeat something. I, I've repeated this before. But I just, I just, I heard it years ago. It's preach the gospel everywhere and use words when necessary. When necessary, yes. So, you know, we may be the only Bible that someone will ever read. And, you know, depending on our actions and our words, uh, you know, they're, they're, we're going to be judged. Yeah, amen. So this passage here, when we talk about the message going out and from the comforter into all the world. Uh, one of the discourses from Yeshua, interestingly, this is around the, 
the context of this is where he's in the temple uh, during the festival dedication, a.k.a. Hanukkah, and giving his one great proclamations that he's not just a teacher, not just a prophet, but he is the son of God coming through as the Mashiach, as the prophet. So this passage here in uh, John 27 through 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hallelujah. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to smatch, snatch them out of the father's hand. Hallelujah. And I and the father are one. Amen. So that message then coming to the people that Yeshiahu has written to who are in exile, and then Mashiach talking to the people who were had Rome's boot on their neck. Both to them, the same message was. Is Persia is Babylon going to snatch the people of God out of God's hand? No. They can jump out of God's hand, so to speak. But would Rome be able to take the people of God away from God's reach? No. So one of the things that um, we're talking about earlier are getting into the passage where we started with here in Deuteronomy. Just some big ideas. We had seen there that it, it finishes off, chapter 3 of Deuteronomy, finishes off with this retelling as Moshe is retelling what happened as he was um, at that point, retelling why he was not going to be going into the land. So, remember that tale is all about this second generation of Israel reminding them where they came from, where they're going, and who they are. And that's one of the, the, the key things about that passage we just read from John chapter 10. That you are in God's hand, no one can snatch you out of that. So that is who you are. You're not wandering around aimlessly, hopelessly looking for where you belong. You belong in the hand of God, no matter where you are, no matter what situation you're in, with your gates of yourself guarded with the words of God, the testimony of who God actually is. So then, with that firmly in mind of who brought us out of our own houses of bondage, just like as we read here, ancient Israel brought out of the house of bondage and toward the land of freedom, then we see in this particular passage a big idea is that you cling to the Lord with all of our hearts, our lives, our resources. 
And one of the other key things that comes from that is when you're clinging to the Lord, you're not corrupting who the Lord is in the process. And that comes, don't add to, don't take away the words of the Lord. Because what happens if you do? If you add to them? Well, how do you know who the Lord actually is? If you take away from them, how do you know who the Lord actually is? Is this why when you have the tablets themselves, they're called the tablets of the testimony? Testimony about what? Who God actually is. And what is the rest of the Torah about? A revelation related to that. You had Genesis, which is how things got to be as they are. And then Exodus, how you're removed from the land of bondage. Leviticus, how you approach the presence of God. Numbers, how you ended up in this land of wandering and wandering away from (laughs) the presence of God is not a good idea. And especially with that passage we saw where the fiery serpents and we saw that the, the particular Hebrew phrasing of that is, is that the serpents weren't necessarily sent, rather they were what? The restraining walls around the camp were lifted, so thus the snakes could roam freely and then go right into the camp. So thus, then we get to Deuteronomy with the second generation going into the land. So they too can say, this is where we belong. The first generation, they were told, hey, this is where you belong in the land. Second generation is, there you go. There's the land again. The rest, the place where you belong. You can go there too. And here's why the first generation that didn't work out, they didn't want to trust God and go in. But here is your chance. Uh, Pamela, you you have your hand up? Okay, I want to know um, when they say don't add to the a word and don't take away, uh, is the common adding to the word what was that? The Talmud adding, are the Talmud adding to the words of God when, when it's told not to do such a thing? In the, in the sense, that was what uh, Yeshua's, um, that's, that's what Yeshua's warning was there in, Math, in Mark chapter 7, is that you do not elevate the traditions of men above the doctrine of God. So, we have plenty of traditions that come. The, the Talmud, the Mishnah, or commentaries on, and traditions established from the Word. You've got plenty of other writings from early, um, early quote, church fathers that come along, established traditions that have come through them. As long as they're kept in their proper place, they can be helpful. But as long as one does not conflict with the other one, 
Because every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God always takes precedent. Always takes precedent over any commentaries, no matter how enlightened they may be. Because one of the things that we saw in that passage from Matthew chapter 5, which is the prelude to the Sermon on the Mount, is that the Mashiach is not going to abolish the law or the prophets. So that should be a reminder about what? Doing anything that abolishes the law or the prophets, which is where you have the, it is a rabbinical idea that whatever makes the Torah stand up is fruitful, but whatever makes the Torah fall down is not fruitful. And thus, you have to (laughs) not uh, take that into account. Yes, Jared? My favorite way to look at this whole concept is is a cake. Cake. I like cake. So the Torah itself is the cake. It's what cake you need. Well, if it's a dessert, you know. Mm. I mean. I need cake. It's not a perfect perfect analogy, but uh, you need eggs and wheat and all that. Yeah. (laughs) So that's that's the actual cake. The traditions are like the frosting and icing and decorations. If you, if you just completely lather a cake and frosting and, or icing, it kind of takes away from the actual flavor of the cake. But if it's a good frosting or a good icing, it can help enhance the, the flavor of the cake. So... Um, at least that's that's how I kind of look at it and how I explain it to to yeah, some people. Yeah, I mean, for, for 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 example, um, you know, you don't have to raise your hand, but just uh, how many of you actually uh, pray before you eat? Okay, where did that come from? Tradition, yes, because what we do have is praying after you eat. Uh, we call that the Birkat. And we actually read that in our particular passage we were going through today. So, yes, there is particular admonition to what? Remember where everything comes from. But it is also a good idea before you charge into eating that you also are reminded where it comes from. So thus, that was the tradition that started with a short one beforehand, and a longer remembrance afterward. So, the tradition of it, helpful, but, you know, also has to be reminded as to where it comes from as a tradition. But, helpful, and and the other thing is, um, there's a lot of, been a lot of battles in recent years about the new moon. How do we know what a new moon is? There's been battles and people have fighting about, you know, it's only a new moon if you can't see it or if you can see it and what this looks like and that looks like. And the, there you had the system that's recorded in there about how large of the slivers and witnesses to the slivers, etc. And if you see a sliver and if you don't see a sliver and on and on and on it goes. What is all all about? It's just that you have a convention of 
what it is. Just so that you can do what? Observe it together. It's like, well, we have a conventions of time. We've got universal time. The it used to be called Greenwich, and now it's the universal time that we have there. Still, still in Greenwich area. But still, that is only to do what? Just say that time doesn't exist except if Greenwich is determining it? No. It's just so that the rest of the world can function in some sort of a time together. So that is all that those things are, is to help people function together. Now, when you start fighting over it, then it starts to become a little bit of a big problem because you are then elevating a tradition, a standard over what the actual instructions are of the, of the creator. Uh, yes, Alex, uh, go ahead. At all in Deuteronomy, um, you know, I was reminded, like Sam was saying a couple weeks ago, about the Old Testament versus the New Testament God. Would that be a classic spot in Deuteronomy where God says, kill them all? What, what do you mean? Well, you know, an Old Testament God would say, when he takes, lets the people go into the promised land, he Anakim, the giants, kill them all. Ah, uh, yes. The New Testament God wouldn't do that, right? Ah, uh, you know? let's see. Yeah. There, you learn how to live with them. Exactly. Be nice. Be they, nice. Yes. They're your enemies. Except for the book of Revelation, which is probably why that uh, had, people were somewhat reluctant to adopt it for quite some time, in, in addition to a number of factors. But one of those being is that it does sound a whole lot like the, um, the occupation of ancient Israel when they moved into the promised land. Because that's a lot of what you see in the day of the Lord. So it looks a lot like that, is that there are those that want to go along with the law of God, and then there's the others that don't want to go along. So we see in the apocalyptic books like Revelation, and you see it also in the book of Isaiah and also in Zechariah, where that situation comes down, is that what happens in the day of the Lord, where you have those that don't want to go along with the kingdom. It is a, it is a very difficult Admittedly, a very difficult topic. But the example that we have uh, in the book of Revelation shows us that, no, there is not a Old Testament, New Testament God. It is or just our perception and our understanding of why those things were done. And like we were talking about earlier, for us in our finite idea of time to understand why it is the Lord did what the Lord did and instructed what the Lord does, we may not understand. The, we can see glimpses of it, and we've talked about this earlier in the passages that we were talking about in Numbers, where 
even examples of it today where if you have a culture that so thoroughly corrupts and confuses the younger generations, that the younger generations will do unspeakable things, unspeakable things. You know, you probably have read about child soldiers in various parts of the planet. They're in parts of Africa, parts of Southeast Asia, parts of, you know, the Middle East, etc. That will just, and in more modern, or not more modern, but in Western history of what happened in Germany in the, under the Nazi regime, they twisted the youth to do unspeakable things. So there is that example in there that if you have those things that can happen to a generation where they are corrupted, just like what was just talked about here with Canaan, that they've become so corrupt that you know, you've got to just move those people out. Now the question come, comes in, well then, what if they just didn't have the message, so to speak? They quote, didn't have the gospel, so to speak. You're just going to clear them out because of that? The one thing that we don't have is ourselves the ability to make alive. Oh, we can kill. Oh, yes, we can. We can devastate, destroy, huge measures. But what can we not do? We can perhaps keep someone from dying but once they are fully gone they're not coming back we cannot bring them back but the one who created heaven and earth can do so so what do then we have to put these things in the hand of the one who can bring things back. Question is, is number one, do we believe that he created heaven and earth? And then do we trust that these things, this vengeance and justice is truly left in his hands? That he will bring these things together for those situations where we might think of, well, how could we just do that to people that are, quote, innocent, unquote? Yes, Larry. I'm reminded of the uh, famous quote from Luther Burbank, where he took an oak leaf and he tore it into little pieces and said, now man can do that. <laughs> he let it drop, he said, only God can put it back together. Yeah, I'm into that. So, one of the last things we want to leave with before we close out here, we we're talking about this a bit earlier, is the, I mean, the question of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. One of the things that we have in this particular passage is um, the question of, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, you shall not add to the word nor take away from it and we've seen that as we're going to get into another 
uh, reading here up here in the near future in Deuteronomy, where when we get into chapter 12 and chapter 13, we see that there are these tests of a prophet. So that when someone is speaking a word and tells you to follow after a different God, how do you test to see whether you should listen or not? Because one of the things that has a, a, a very frequent message in the family of God here today is that there indeed was a message to do something differently when it says, um, when we're going to read in our next passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8, when it says, you know, you'll not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, there is a teaching that some of those words of God had a time limit on them, and they were brought to an end with the time when the Messiah came in. So, thus, we're, we're left with a, a very interesting then question, is then, is the era of Messiah, did Yeshua then, as uh, one translation puts that from Romans, that Christ is the end of the law. And one passage that we have here from Mark chapter 7, where he's, uh, Yeshua is addressing this situation about tradition versus every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He talks about a people that honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That's a quotation from Isaiah twenty nine thirteen. Neglecting the commandment of God, they hold to the tradition of men. See, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. So, in one of those things that we see, we started in there with a reading today of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. That is the preamble to the Sermon on the Mount. That is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And the parallel to this is over in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 36. So obviously there's a lot more detail that you have in Matthew's account of this particular passage. But each one of these passages has a preamble. And a preamble to it, just like the preamble to our Constitution of the United States is that this is how you should then understand what comes next. That's what a preamble does. You know, it's like if you've ever read a book and it has a forward or a preamble or something like that, I used to just like skip past that. It's like, come on, let's just get to the good stuff. But if you lose it, that aspect of why the author wrote it you may miss a lot of what the author is getting at here. So, when you go into the Sermon on the Mount, or uh, you could, it's been called the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's version of it, each one of them has a preamble. In this particular one, it's what we just read, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 20, and over in Luke, it's uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. But each one of these things, we read this passage earlier from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and this particular passage is, you know, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not 
come to abolish, to, but to fulfill. And we've talked about that previously. The, the Greek word there for fulfill is pleru. And pleru, the Greek word, is also used in another passage talking about <laughs> when Yeshua was talking to Yohanan uh, at the time when he was being immersed in the Arden. He says, this is proper to pleru all righteousness. So thus, when you see a lexicon say that pleru is best understood to fill up, when we say to fill full, uh, to fulfill, it could be best understood as to fill full. That's correct. Because you use that understanding of the word to fill full all righteousness, to I did not come to abolish, but to fill full. What? To fill full. The law and the prophets, what he was just talking about. And that is what follows. That's what follows through in the rest of the um, Sermon on the Mount. Oh, yes, uh, Sam, you have a comment or a question there. Yeah, I've always wondering about that uh, passage of the Scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you said now, because uh, when I was kind of, you know, looking at it, I thought, you know, fulfill, when you bring something to fulfillment, that means it's complete. Means completed. So, yes, that's a common, uh, common way that this, this passage is understood. Yeah, yes. and, I, and I believe that's what makes uh, people believe that, you know, Jesus Christ came, he fulfilled the Old Testament, now we start with the New. But, you know, my personal interpretation of that particular passage was reveal. You know, like, you know, he revealed to us, I do not come to abolish, but to reveal. Because when thing is being revealed to us, we really know how to apply it, what it really means. Yes. True interpretation of it. Because uh, the Jewish people has been very, very, you know, are practical about the law, like frontlet we were talking about, you know, the tablim, everything. It's a literal transla- uh, you know, translation to them. But I believe what God is really hinting at when we look at it is a spiritual application. Like, you know, when we read Ephesians chapter 6, you don't see uh, Paul telling us to dress in harbor and walking around every day, you know, with all those, uh, like we are going to the battle. But I believe he's talking about the spiritual warfare that we are engaging in on a daily basis, that we have to guard ourselves, the inner being, you know, with righteousness, to be able, because if we don't give uh, the enemy anything to walk on, he will leave. But then not giving him anything to walk on is by guarding ourselves, the inner being putting the metus on the door, applying all these things spiritually rather than traditional, rather than literally. Because I was wondering, did the Yeshua put, uh, did he wear those things, you know, like having the frontlet everywhere he goes and dress as, you know, as a, you know, the rabbis would dress in those days. Uh-huh. So um, for me, Pastor, I, I, I think maybe it's more on a spiritual you know, uh, application to our daily life to be able to see because they do things things physically, literally, 
But inside, because the scripture said, truly they worship me with their mouth. But their heart is very far from me. Yeah. So we can put on regalia outside. But the inside is not, you know, really connected with what we are reading. And I think that's where the spiritual application coming in. And it's a revelation. And that's why when I look at that scripture, I say, maybe what the Lord, the true interpretation is, is, you know, he bring it to, you know, to review. Because you cannot have a, revel uh, uh, a relationship with something unless you first know it. And when you know something, you have knowledge of what it is. And then you build a, a, a relationship because you knew what that, uh, you know, it, it's all about. So I just, when you said that, it's just like, oh, okay, maybe my interpretation was wrong. So, mm. yeah. Well, one, one of the things to, um, you know, it's, it's a great conversation between, you know, both sides of the, the equations of that. And that's one of the things that we, we saw when we were going through in the, the book of Leviticus is because that is where you see in Isaiah chapter 1, and we read that in our last passage uh, last week, is that um, when it's talking about, you know, I hate your feasts, we look at what, the, what they had made of it and when you see that passage you're talking about to worship in spirit and truth and to um, see what is happening inside the inner man, if you have it just as the external side, which is what you see addressed in Isaiah chapter 1, they had just turned it into a completely external thing. But then on the other side, if one of the things that is taken is that um, all of it is only spiritual, then what is lost is some of the, you could say, the, um, the object lessons of it. And for example, when the, we go through the Leviticus of the, the tabernacle, these things are a sensory experience of it. You know, you have the smell of incense. You also have the smell of burning flesh. And so you get the thing that comes into uh, a, a big um, conflict, with, like with the hola offering or the whole burnt offering, where everything is going up all together. Yet that is described in the word as being a soothing aroma to the Lord. So you're thus left with the physical representation of the, um, you call it spiritual discipline of it, is done through a physical thing, but you are getting the lesson that comes out of that, of like, this is something that stinks, and it's all going burning up, so you see the fire. You see everything just, it's not a nice barbecue. This is just burning it beyond recognition. Everything, stench, everything is just going up. But then after you see that horrific scene of when, you know, what could have been a barbecue but just ends up being a pyre, 
that is described as a soothing aroma. So you could go through the, the physical process of just throwing a carcass up on the altar, burning it all up, and then walk away and just say, well, I've done my mitzvah, that's fine. But if you then lose the idea of connecting it with what it's said, hey, this is a soothing aroma to the Lord, thus you're now saying, okay, well, what is actually involved with this process? So just like when you see uh, Yeshua rails against, you know, you, know, you, you make your tefillin big and you make your tzitzitot long, to do what? To draw attention to yourself. You pray in open spaces. You know, is your prayer, you know, um, not, not, not saying that it was ostentatious, but in a very public way like Shlomo Solomon praying at the dedication of the temple. Public for everybody to see and everybody to hear. Or is it like Hannah there in the temple, just it's so quiet that the priest on duty at the time thinks she's drunk. She's just kind of babbling to herself. So in both of those expressions, it's like, you know, what is your intention in the process? Is it to draw attention to yourself? Or is it for your connection? Now, someone can go through a traditional representation of your tzitzitot, your tefillin, have all of the the traditions down, be connected with God, and be completely for show. And you can have none of those particular traditional um, representations of something and be completely connected for God and completely making a show of it without any sort of traditional representations of things. So, again, it just gets down to... um, that's one of the things why Paul's writings, why the apostle uh, Peter says that he's so hard to understand, is that, and you know, you start reading the book of Romans and you think the guy is um, ha- having an argument with himself. You know, is, am, I, am I saying this? No, no, no. It, may it never be. But one of those things that's very hard to see in this is that it is very easy to tip over into what is pejoratively called legalism, and it's very easy to tip over into what you could say um, is, you could say, uh, called the, um, drawing a blank on the word, but basically the ecstatic experiences of it, where it is just all um, emotion. And someone that may be, tend to more of the, of the physical side of these connections with God, may see that someone on the completely emotional side, oh, you're just too emotional. You know, mine, uh, come let us reason together. That is how I deal with God. Then this on the other side, will then look at the person on the emotional side, well, you're just, you're, you're just swept up in emotions, and people can just lead you around with with uh, fog machines and electric guitars and banging drums and all kinds of stuff and just lead you by the nose to whatever they want you to do. But I had this conversation with a musician friend of mine because, you know, 
he grew up in a particular tradition that was very head-focused. I mean, extremely cerebral with charts and graphs and everything else. Everything's prophecies that are down to the moment and long timelines and this and that and the other. And he's like, you know, I feel empty because for him, his heart was that of like David. And it was just all about songs and singing out to the Lord. So it's like, but he went through there and seen that the particular um, specifics of the ways of the, of the Lord are, they're in scripture. You cannot deny them and just say, well, um, they're, it's just all the emotional aspect of it. So I was like, so I said, why don't you just go and read Psalm 119? And what do you see in there? You will see both. That is like the whole man, the whole person that is the emotional and the law together. You know, how I love your law. And on and on and on and on it goes. You're, you're seeing someone is having an ecstatic experience with the Torah. You're like, whoa, whoa, what? wait. Because I've been told it's just all uh, the physical. Where it's been told it's all the emotional. But those things join together. So it is extremely easy to have the instructions of God taken to be nothing but empty ritual. And it's easy to have the things of God be taken to nothing but the ecstatic and to not have them ever joining together. And that is the huge, huge danger, which is, which is why you have, um, uh, it's one of the things we've gotten to in previous occasions where we talk about the, where these traditions came from. And you see that in the earlier parts of like the, um, tractate a vote in the in the mishnah where it talks about where these came from and it's mainly about putting the fences around it you see some of the later commentators like uh, <laughs> called kimchi but it's a uh, kimchi and uh he talks about the fact that you have a fence around it as a boundary to protect it now you see in the temple period, this our second temple period, how that was abused. You saw that what ended up happening is, you know, instead of doing this this great fulfillment for um, what Shlomo was calling for, that this would be a house of prayer for all nations, you actually had barriers for the nations to come in. And so thus you could see that the heart of God in being a light to all the nations was being thwarted in this particular case. Now, you could say it started from a very good reason because one of the key things of, that led up to the exiles was like in the passage we were reading back in Deuteronomy is you did not separate your uh, worship of God from the nations. And you just brought, you know, the, the gates of your home were just open. You weren't analyzing the stuff that was coming through your gates to see, hey, does this line up with the law of God or not? No. All the, all the income free, just everything, just come on in. We're going to just take it all inside, mix it all together, and call this something something new. Which is, we, we mentioned this before, 
where you get uh, this perplexing situation for archaeologists because they'll dig up figurines and, you know, say like, you know, the Lord with the name of God on the figurine and his Asherah, his wife. They're together. So you're saying that they just took the things of God and just blended them all together. So then the archaeologists all just uh, dig this up later and go, well, this is what the people believed. And so the Torah is a fantasy. And they were thinking that they were monotheists and this and that. This is what they really were like, where the opposite was actually the case. Where this was the ways of the nations. The Lord is saying, no, no, you guys are going to do something different because there's like just noise out here where people don't even know who the creator of heaven and earth is anymore. They're just, you know, they're just thinking it's one of the, the Baals out there, various storm gods, various fertility gods. There's, that's how things came to be. That's how the world works. No, we need to clear out the noise here and you see in spectacular fashion what Eliyahu did up there, Mount Carmel. I mean, spectacular display. It's like, all right, we'll show you exactly who's in charge now. To say, now, you got to clear out the Asherah stuff, got to clear out the Baal stuff, and show you exactly who is actually running the show on the earth. So it's easy for the things of God to get easily corrupted down through time, which, you know, is why, uh, now, you might say things go overboard, but if you at least have a tradition where things are, and that's where you might see in some of the more liturgical senses, uh, liturgical practices, they'll keep things from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. They might say, well, that just encapsulates in and solidifies in concrete um, bad practices or distortions. But it also then does keep things from one generation to the next. That's why we have our scriptures here to begin with, because people had this, and they came up with these very specific rules on how you copy the scriptures. And those things were kept from from generation to generation to generation, with allowing into there to be very little change from one thing to another. But just like what we were saying here with the um, the doorposts of your home, all of these things that are coming in through your door need to be checked against the words of God to say, yeah, is this you know almost going back and and uh, asking the question in reverse from what the adversary was saying in the garden. He was challenging the first couple. Did God really say? Did God really say this? Did God really say this? And what we should be doing is a bit of the sort in reverse to challenge the things that come in through our door. Did God really say this? Does this really kind of fit with what the things of God really are? And analyze these things as they come in. Uh, yes, Rose. I'm sorry to be going on. I just want to remind us once again of Isaiah 42:21. It says, "The Lord is well pleased for His righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and yes. make it honorable." He never said that He was going to destroy it. He said He was going to magnify the law and make it honorable. Yeah, 
And one of the, the, the key things of the uh, Moshe and the prophets and the Messiah and the apostles was to take the law of God and, you know, just as Sam was talking about, show how you live it out in life. Because if it's just all in your head and sounds good, you maybe can speak it good, speak it very well. But if it doesn't actually come out in how you behave, then what real good is it done in the world? That's like what we're reading here with this passage in Matthew chapter 5, with the parables of the light and the salt. Light and the salt. And one of the things we saw in the latter part of the book of Numbers was what? The covenant of salt. That that is one of the things that the priesthood would be given. And that was given to Kinkas or Phineas, the covenant of salt. Why? What just happened that he was given the covenant of peace and the covenant of salt? To deal with that issue of the immorality that swept away a whole generation. So thus, when you see that in the world today, where the younger generations are getting easily swept away by all kinds of stuff, that we as the extended priesthood, not the actual priesthood, but the extended priesthood of believers of the, of the kingdom of Israel, we should also have a sort of a covenant of salt to preserve, to purify, to protect the things that come through. So hopefully, as we go in further, the, the rest of the section of Deuteronomy, I hope you got one of the outlines we have over there, which uh, shows how, because when the next, <laughs> next few Torah readings are all going to be on sections that further expound upon the Ten Commandments and various forms of it, so that we'll be hitting those various aspects and coming back to the Sermon on the Mount where Yeshua is expounding upon and hitting the reset button for some of the understandings of the Ten Commandments and the expounding parts of the Ten Commandments that are found in the book of Deuteronomy. So any uh, last thoughts as we close out? Yes, uh, Larry. One of the things that I was, it was just presented to me uh, recently is the first part of Deuteronomy where Moses has to go up on Mount Pisgah and look at the promised land. Yes. But you notice when he, all he had to do to seek the land of Canaan was to look west. Mm. But he was told to look north, south, east, and west. So he was apparently shown the entire kingdom, not just their temporal promised land, but the real promised land. So yeah, that, I think that whole, adds a little more richness to that idea of he was punished for not doing, not giving God the credit, but at the same time he was given the, an amazing image of what was going to be in the future. That he was going to be able to, he's going to be there, no question about that, as far as I know anyway. So I thought that was interesting understanding of that. 
Yeah, and you you see the <laughs> what what do you also see is a little bit of the corollary to that that um, picture where where Moshe is showing the land. What does that sound like? What was that, Anne? Sounds like Sukkot, where we do our blessing. Yes, our blessing of the four corners. So mm-hmm. the expectation that the God is going to bring things in from the four corners of the earth, bring the nations in. But also, what was one of the um, temptations of the Mashiach? Took him up to... So he was able to see all the nations of the world and said, what? Bow down to me and you'll get everything. Without all the hassle and everything. So Moshe... Moshe was worried about what with the rock? And what did he say at the rock? You know, it was, gave the pressure, uh, the impression, you know, shall I bring water from the rock? And then also leading up to about you rebels. And the Lord's response back to him was because you did not what? Honor me as kadosh, as separate, as holy in this, then that is a key reason as to why you're not going in. So the one who was able to take Israel into the land, that was the one who was going to take him in. The Lord was going to take him in. So. Yeshua, Yehoshua, took them in. Yes. So then, you know, when you have the temptation given to Mashiach, you know, all these lands will be yours if you just worship me. Well, who's the one who actually brings all the nations in? Yeah, the creator of heaven and earth is the one who brings all the nations in. Created the whole earth, created people on the earth. So. That is the one who you trust to put in. So you have a similar message that was given to Moshe back then as well. Who do you trust to actually bring the people in? So Mashiach was saying, yeah, I know who to trust. I know who I represent. And he is fully able to bring the people in. Doesn't need any help. Doesn't need to cut a deal with the adversary to kind of give up the land. So, in a similar way, we think of the similar deal with the nations that Israel went into. One of the things that is often done with syncretism or blending of beliefs, you hear it a lot today, is to do what? Coexist? Make the word of God more relevant to be able to be relatable to other people and does the word of god need to be blended with something else to be made more relevant just like you know what mashiach responded is like doesn't need to have the help of the adversary you don't need this is 
This is not Zoroastrianism here where you need to have, you know, the adversary has to play a role to have the salvation of all mankind. There's no yin and the yang here working together to bring about the salvation of the world. No, there's only the creator of heaven and earth is fully able to save. To save, to protect, to deliver. Yeah, yes, Lorella. Uh, back to what you were saying, um, I've been told that I need to dilute the scriptures because dilute. I'm teaching younger kids and they may not want to have those concepts yet. We want to have the God of sunshine, rainbows, and butterflies. We don't want to have the God of judgment. We don't want to understand that there are rules that we are to follow. And I can't agree with that. When I teach, especially children, I have to teach them there are consequences to everything we do. And in the Bible, it shows what those consequences are. It's, it's a tough one for me. So I appreciate that in this group, we talk about that. We don't whitewash everything. But it does make it a lot more comfortable for our people that aren't really quite... Yeah. I, yeah, sorry. Yeah, because uh, you, you bring up a very interesting point, and we're going to see that as we continue to go on here. Uh, through, through Deuteronomy, and we've already seen it going through Numbers, is that this, what you're seeing revealed in the Word is the beachhead that the kingdom of God is having in the world. Just like you saw like in D-Day or something else, is where to move in to someone else's territory, you've got to go in and establish a place. and then move out from there so in the process you see that the kingdom of god is moving out through the world established there with avraham that there was going to be a people of god that were going to carry the testimony of god throughout all the world and continues to move through into the world now in the process this is an ugly world with ugly things that go on in this world. And this is something that the kingdom of God is pushing back on. And, you know, sadly, it is something that people who uh, don't want to have a change, a change of the way things are done, will, pull, will push back on it. It will push back on it. I mean, you see what is happening today is what has happened in years gone by the idea of shooting the messenger you know people don't like the message they go after the one who gives the message and today it's given the more clinical terms like repressive tolerance where you basically say to to uh, we will tolerate all kinds of of speech and behavior out there but there is some speech that's just too dangerous, so that must be repressed. That's been the way of the world from the very, very beginning. And it will continue to be that way until the Mashiach comes to set up the kingdom. And as we see in Revelation and in the prophets, that the lies of the adversary are finally put down and revealed for what they are as lies yes jared we just got back from Masaya west coast and this year um 
the staff and the speakers asked or sent out a survey to all the or to a majority of the, the students who would have been attending and said, what are the things that you want to learn about? And uh, the, the main speaker, Mr. John Lipke, talked about the tabernacle and how that should be a um, blueprint for how our faith should be carried out. And uh, the last night, on the last night of camp, he said, well, I had been asked uh, one of the questions, or there were five big things that uh, people were wanting to discuss. And he said all five of those could be, could be um, explained through the layout of the tabernacle and, how, and its services. And he said, I'd like to change the last one, which was how to defend the faith. And he said, we shouldn't be defending the faith. We shouldn't be on the defensive. We should be on the offensive. We need to take it out. And he said, if you look at the tabernacle, it's not a very defendable structure. Its walls are literally cloth. And it was meant to be breaking, uh, to uh, be breaking. <laughs> me, me English well. Um, <laughs> it was meant to be broken down and carried and taken from place to place. So we shouldn't necessarily be on the, off, on the defensive. We should be on the offensive. And then he said, Yeshua was offensive in two senses of the word. I mean, you try calling a group of religious leaders a brood of vipers and see how well that goes with you. And he was also offensive in that he went out and he, he was active. He didn't just sit there and wait for, you know, people to come to him. He went out. He was an example, as we all should be. Almost like he was overcoming strongholds. Something like that. Yes. Almost, almost as if. Yeah. Yes, uh, Carrie. Well, I think kind of going along with both of you, um, you know, there is always the contingent that, you know, they're offended by the truth no matter what. Um, but then I also, you know, I think that <clears throat> one of our callings is to work toward balance too. And we always need to be aware and take ownership of how we're acting when we're speaking oh, to people yes. too and what our testimony looks like. Yes. Because unfortunately, being human beings, sometimes we contribute to the deception and the rebellion that abounds in the world because yes. they don't want to have anything to do with a God that allows his people to do some of the things that we've yes. done. Yeah, I've um, heard that. You know, so it's, it's really important to, you know, um, just kind of keep that balance and stay aware um, of, you know, how we're treating each other yes. and how we're treating the people in the world. And like Messiah did, you know, Messiah always spoke the truth and it did offend some people. But he also acted in a way that was completely different from what they all expected. Yes. So, and the way that he did behave did attract people in the world and did attract people that were in problems in their life. Mm, yes. So, there is a way for us to speak the truth and stay in alignment with the word and still be more relevant to the people who need the message sometimes. Yes. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel dot info. <laughs>